This morning I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop and with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the mountain, to the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hand grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. He said, indeed, my hand is lifted up towards the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek for generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to jump right in because in many ways this passage is, is kind of a doozy for us in, in some of the ways it's going to take us this morning. Uh, in this section of Exodus that we've been going through, kind of part two of our series in Exodus, we've been looking at Israel going through the wilderness and their, the trials and the, the struggles that they have had as a people coming out of Egypt and heading to the promised land. And so far, the, the battles, the drama, the tension has been internal. It's been internal to the people of Israel. Will they be faithful to the Lord? Will they trust the Lord or will they despair and fall into fear? This morning, our passage shifts the emphasis. It goes from internal battles to external battles as Israel faces their first battle with an outside nation since being set free from Egypt. We read in Chapter 17, verse 8, at Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. So if you were with us last week, if you remember, it is at Rephidim that Moses struck the rock and the rock split open and God provided water for Israel. So we're in the same location, the very place God did this for Israel, the nation of Amalek comes and makes war against Israel. Now, question for us, who is Amalek and why are they picking a fight with God's people? Well, it's actually very significant that it would be Amalek to be the first nation that Israel fights and goes to battle with coming out of Egypt. You see, Israel and Amalek actually share a genetic link. They are distant cousins. The founder, the namesake of the Amalekites, Amalek, was the grandson of Esau. And Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. And it is from the nation of Israel, or from Jacob and his sons that the nation of Israel came forth. And so there is family history here. And if you're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, these two brothers had a world-class sibling rivalry, constantly fighting and competing. Even before they were born, these two were at each other. Read about this in the book of Genesis. Before they were born, they're, they're fighting and they're struggling in their mother Rebecca's womb. And she asks, what is going on inside of me? And here's what the Lord tells her. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. 
The Lord tells her the struggling of these brothers that you are experiencing is representative of a war that is going to take place, a battle that will take place far, 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 far longer than just these two. From them, two nations are going to come, and these nations are going to be in conflict with one another. And notice an important detail here. The Lord tells her that the older will serve the younger. See, typically the older brother was given a particular blessing in birthrights. Esau, as the firstborn, he should have been the one to receive this birthright and blessing. He should have been the one to be in the privileged position and sort of carry on the covenantal promise that God gave to Abraham and then Esau and Jacob's father, Isaac. Esau should have been the one to carry this forward. But God said that's not what's going to happen. Actually, the younger, the less privileged, is going to be the one to carry forward the line and the promise. The Lord makes it very clear just here before their birth that Jacob will be greater. In an act of sovereign grace and free grace, the Lord chooses the younger, the less privileged, to be the one that he is going to bring his nation, his people from. And so Amalek's attack on Israel. One, this fulfills God's word to Rebekah. Why are these two fighting? Well, God said it was going to happen all the way back at the beginning here. But also, be very clear, make no mistake, Amalek is coming for revenge. Amalek hates the fact that descendants of Jacob are experiencing a blessing that should have been their founder's birthright. Now you think, wow, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later and they're still mad? Most people get over things, you know, far, far sooner than that. Well, yeah, in the West... We typically think in years and decades, but in the ancient Near Eastern cultures and even in the Middle East today, their memory lasts centuries. This was not unusual to hold a grudge for well over 400 years. And so Amalek is coming after Israel because of who Israel is and what they represent. But also, there, there was, before this battle, Amalek was actually attacking Israel, was picking on Israel in their journey. In Deuteronomy 25, we read this. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. Amalek had been picking on the slow and the weak and the stragglers all along, but now they were coming full force. And so this phrase, came and fought against, in verse 8, the, the weight and the strength of that in the Hebrew gives the impression that Amalek is bringing their entire army. And if not their entire army, most of it. This is a full-on, full-frontal attack. What was just sort of picking off the stragglers is now full-on war. Amalek is coming after Israel because of this long-standing anger and this long-standing grudge. But also make no mistake, this is also a spiritual attack. The, the Amalekites' attack on Israel is an attack on the sovereign grace of God that chose Jacob over Esau. See, Israel and the blessing and the inheritance that they had and they experienced didn't come from self-reliance. It didn't come from pride. It didn't come from chasing earthly power and kingdom building. It came from God's love and grace. And the Amalekites hated that. They did not fear God. They did not 
honor and submit to the kingship and the authority and the sovereign grace of Yahweh. They attacked the people God, God loved as an attack on Yahweh himself. And this made them not only Israel's enemies, but God's enemies as well. Here's where it gets real for us, church. As the people of God, we too are in a battle. We too have enemies. We too have those who oppose our faith because they hate our God. Now, look, like Israel, we have internal battles to fight. Like, it is on us to make sure we are not the reason and cause for us turning away from the Lord. We, we, we're not to fight each other. I'm not saying we fight each other. But we are to fight against our sin and fight against doubt and despair and false teaching and, and, and anything that would corrupt from the inside of the church our faith. And in many ways, that's our primary battle. Over and over and over in Scripture, it is clear that we tend to be our own worst enemies. Like the greatest threats to the, the people of God typically come from inside the church, not outside the church. So we have plenty of internal battles to face. However, it does not change the fact that we have enemies. We have those that want to wreck and ruin our faith from the outside. We have external enemies, we have external battles, and if we don't fight them, we are in danger. Like we are in danger. We live in a very real war, church, a war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. This war is real. Do you acknowledge it? Do you believe it? Are you aware of it? Maybe this morning you're like, oh yes, I am very, very aware of it. Or maybe you're here this morning and you haven't really given it much thought. Wherever you are, the battle is real. Now, the opposition that we face certainly comes through people. It comes through institutions, human institutions. It comes through things like the government. But we also have to be clear in this war, in this battle, where the enemy truly lies. For as Ephesians 6.12 tells us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Our war is ultimately a spiritual war. The battle we face is ultimately a spiritual battle. Now, some, some people have tended to draw kind of weird implications from Ephesians 6.12, but, but here's what it means, simply put. That there are evil spiritual forces, spiritual beings, that exercise influence and power and control in our world. Our enemy, the one Jesus calls the ruler of this world in John 14, 30, and who the Apostle Paul calls the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience in Ephesians 2, 2, that enemy uses people and systems and structures of this world to wage war against God and God's people. He, he seeks to kill and steal and destroy. 
According to 2 Corinthians 4, he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And so look, yes, people are evil. People are sinful. Sin, pride, rebellion, evil lives in our hearts separate from the evil forces in our world. At the same time, at the same time, behind the evil of humanity, there is a greater evil, a spiritual evil that that is provoking our sin, that is fanning the flame of our sin, that is using the systems and structures in our world to spread and evil and corrupt. There's a spiritual evil behind what we experience in the physical world, church. And if all we do is acknowledge just sort of the human side of it, we're missing a significant part of the battle. We could say we're actually missing the biggest part of the battle. What Amalek represented here was not just a physical threat to Israel, but a spiritual one. It wasn't just a physical attack, it was a spiritual attack. And so friends, physical and spiritual evil are real. And such evil hates what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. It hates the authority and kingship of God. It hates the sovereign grace of God and those who have received God's love and grace. Friends, like Amalek came for Israel, our enemy is coming and fighting against us coming and fighting against you, coming and fighting against me, coming and fighting against us as a church. Sometimes that enemy comes, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, like a roaring lion. Did you know that a lion's roar actually has the effect on a prey's nervous system where it like shocks their nervous system and they can kind of go into the state of paralysis? I was reading this article about how they've been trying to run tests on humans, having them listen to a roar to see if it will do the same things to humans. And there's evidence to suggest it, it could. But, it, but it's amazing that this roar, the pitch of their roar, shuts down the nervous system of a prey so that the lion can pounce. And our enemy does that, wants us to freeze with fear. And so our enemy will use fear to freeze us. To, to, to get us locked up so that we will not thrive in our faith. We will not be faithful to Jesus. We will not be a church that advances the gospel in our world. Our, our, our enemy seeks to use fear to freeze us and shut us down. And so our enemies, at times, will use the, the fear of threat, the threat of persecution, the threat of losing your job, the threat of being marginalized, the threat of uh, being called a bigot or judgmental or a hypocrite or self-righteous. Because look, who wants to be called any of those things? Who wants any of those things to happen? Like those things hurt. Like if you've ever been called judgmental or self-righteous, you know that hurts. If you've ever been accused of being a bigot, you know that hurts. And even if you know you're not being those things, there's still something inside of you that can freeze. The, the, the idea that you could potentially lose your job, and for some of you, that's actually a reality. Because of your faith in Jesus, because you refuse to follow certain procedures and values in our world, that you could lose your job, that's a very real pain that can create, create fear in you and can cause you to freeze. That's what our enemy wants. 
wants you to freeze, wants you to back down, wants you to say, you know what? Being obedient to Jesus, ah, it ain't worth it. The threat's too big. Church, understand the enemy wants us weak and timid. Wants us to keep our mouths shut about the gospel. Wants us to take our faith and go hide in the corner. Or better yet, decide that our faith actually isn't in line with what is good and abandon it altogether. And we see this happening more and more in our society, more and more threats. Again, I've said this before, I'm not a prophet, I'm not claiming I know exactly how our culture is going to go, culture has ebbs and flows, but where we're headed right now is even more threats, even more persecution, even more this sense of fear, that if you are a Christian and you live that faith out in public, if you stand for Jesus in public, there are going to be consequences. And our enemy wants you to fear those consequences, so you freeze. Now, our enemy also uses other means. Sometimes he comes as a lion, other times, and maybe even more often he comes, as we see in Genesis 3, as a snake. Whispering in our ears as he did to Eve, has God really said? Like, is the Bible really true? Like, like really, is it true? Have you ever stopped and thought about that for a second? Like, just think about where we've been the past several months. Water coming from a rock, really? A, a sea splitting, really? Plagues, really? Like a whole nation moving through the desert, really? Like, is the Bible really true? Has God really said? Can it, can it really tell you what to do? Like, do you really need to obey it and follow it? Really? Is God really good? Like, if God was good, why are you suffering so much? If God is really good, why are you going through things like mental illness and cancer, and divorce? Why are you going through things like conflict in your marriage, and conflict with your kids, conflict in the church? If God is really good, why all the suffering? You really believe he loves you? You know what? You're a good person. You're a good enough person. Do you really need to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Like, do you really need to die to yourself? Like, like you're, you're a good enough person. You're, you're not a bigot. You, you know what? You work hard, so you are entitled to do what you want, when you want, with your money and your relationships and your time and your sexuality. But like, as long as you aren't hurting anybody, you're free to do what you want, right? That's your right as an American. Has God really said... Has God really said there's only male and female? Has God really said that homosexuality is a sin? I mean, really, you're not a bigot, right? You're a good person. Why would you listen to that? Why would you listen to some book that has no bearing on how we live today? Those friends that don't follow Jesus, that family member you know that doesn't follow Jesus, they're nice people. They're good people. You don't think God's really going to judge them, do you? Come on, you don't need to share the gospel with them. You don't need to tell them about Jesus. They're fine just as they are. They're nice. You're getting along. Everything is great. 
Can you relate to any of that deception? Any of those lies? Have you heard any of those things tempting you in your heart? Come on, if we're honest, some of those things sound really good at times. Some of those things can be really tempting at times. So church, listen, whether it be through fear or deception, our enemy seeks to wear us down and erode away our faith. And you know, really, why use fear? Because you know what often happens when, when it's fear and persecution? The church gets fired up. Often the places of greatest revival are where there's the greatest persecution. <laughs> and I know revival has kind of been in the news lately in some parts of the country, but just understand, typically, where the greatest revival happens, there's the greatest persecution. Just saying. But listen, why would the enemy need to use fear when he can lull us to sleep? Why scare us out of faith when he can offer us the promise of comfort and tell us, you know what? Following Jesus doesn't really cost you anything. Nah, it doesn't really cost you anything. You can live a nice, comfortable, American, American dream life. Still, follow Jesus. Tack him on. You know, not, don't get too carry, carried away and crazy. But you can make this work. Keeps us comfortable. Lulls us to sleep. But understand this, church. Whether it is through fear or deception, our enemy's aim and his goal is not your good. He's doing everything in his power to keep you from seeing and believing in the glory of Christ and being faithful to follow him. The enemy does not want you to know Christ and be transformed by Christ and live for the, the glory of Christ. Like, if you're here this morning and, and you don't profess faith, listen, the enemy wants nothing more than to keep you there. He does not want you to believe in Jesus to experience the forgiveness and freedom that are in life that is in Christ. He wants to keep you blind to the glory of Christ and the good that is in Jesus. For those of you who are in Christ, understand, he can't take you out of the hand of God. But what he can do is try to wreck and ruin and shrink your faith to keep you in this place of immaturity where you have little faith and little joy and little peace and little hope, where, where you are tossed to and fro like someone who's immature and uncertain all the time. He wants to keep you in that state of fear and doubt and despair because if he can keep you there, he knows you're no threats. A weak, timid, immature Christian is no threat to him and his kingdom. And that's what he wants to, where he wants to keep us. That's where he wants to keep us, church. He wants the church too weak, too scared, too disunified, too morally compromised, and too self-centered to ever be a shining light in this world, to ever be taking the gospel into this world and going to war against his kingdom. The enemy wants you wrapped around the axle with false teaching, Fear, disobedience, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, sexual impurity, and conflict. Like That's his goal for you. That's his heart for you. What is the heart of Jesus for you? Freedom, forgiveness, life, joy, peace, all found in him. That's what he wants for you. The enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy you. Church, 
Are we aware of this? Are we aware of the battle? Are we engaged in the battle? Like, are you engaged in the battle? Are you paralyzed in fear? Have you been lulled to sleep? Are you awake? Are you aware? Are you fighting? Because when the the enemy comes to Israel, Israel fights back. Isn't this amazing? Like, what we've seen over the past few weeks, it it wouldn't be uh, surprising to see Israel fall into fear. Like, you would expect them to go, oh, no, here they come. we got to run. What are we going to do? But that's not what happens. They fight. They step up in faith. It is amazing the faith that they show. Moses tells Joshua in verse 9, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. That Moses has to tell Joshua, go find some men to fight, says something. That there weren't men that had already been chosen to fight. Like, Israel didn't have a standing army at this time. They had just come out of slavery. They weren't a trained fighting force. So Moses says, hey, Joshua, go find some dudes that look like they can carry a sword and swing it without hurting the guy next to them and go at it. Joshua is a man of faith. And he does just what Moses told him to do. And while Joshua takes the men to fight, Moses, along with Aaron and Hur, go and stand on a hilltop with God's staff in his hand. And the connection becomes, quickly becomes clear. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. So as long as Moses held his staff up, Israel was winning the battle. The moment his arm went down, Israel would start losing the battle. So what's the connection with the arm up and the arm down? What's going on with that? Well, on the hilltop, Moses sets himself between God and the people of God at, at war. He's their mediator. He establishes himself as their mediator, and he stands before God on behalf of the people of Israel with hands raised as if he was praying. He's praying for the people, bringing their needs before the Lord, asking God to exercise his power and faithfulness for his people. Moses says as much in verse 16, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. And raising his hand, it's as if Moses is putting his hand on the very throne of God and placing his hand there, he is saying, we need you, our king. We need you. We need your power. We need you to defeat our enemies. Be gracious to us. Fight for us. So Moses is praying for the people. Also as mediator, Moses is the one who called the people to trust the Lord. And Moses is the one through whom the power of the Lord is exercised for his people. And so the staff, it represents God's presence and power and authority. And so a raised staff signifies the Lord's presence, power, and authority over Israel and for Israel. The raised staff declared the Lord's power, the Lord's presence, rescues and redeems as they've seen, but it now also fights for the people of God. It was in, under, and through the power of the Lord that Israel fought Amalek. Even more. It is through Israel, the Lord is fighting Amalek. Right here, right in this first battle that they experience coming out of Egypt, God establishes something very clear for Israel. It's under me and my power that you fight. Under me and my power, you're victorious. 
And this becomes clear once Moses' arm drops. Because once his arm goes down, what happens? They start losing. Arm down means no longer under the presence and power of the Lord. You know, it's, it's funny how hard it is to keep your arm up for a long period of time. Have you ever tried just, just doing this? Like, after a couple minutes at most, your arm starts to just, it just feels like it weighs 200 pounds. Like, I, I, there's been multiple times where I've been trying to change a light bulb, and you know a light bulb weighs 0. 0.075 hundredths of a pound? Like, not even a tenth of a pound. And you hold that thing, and if, if the, the socket's kind of wonky, and it takes a while to screw it in, your arm, my arm is just like, Ugh, and I got to like hold it down, rest it for a while, you know? You ever had those moments, you know, just holding the lightest thing up for a small amount of time, and your arm gets tired. Moses had to hold his arms up all day, and he knew there's no way he could do it. Why he brings Aaron and her. Moses knew it wasn't in his strength that they were going to win. It wasn't in his power that Israel was going to be victorious. So he brought his brother and her with him to keep his arm up because he knew only in the power of the Lord were they going to win. They needed the Lord to, to fight under the power of the Lord. And after their victory over Amalek, Moses builds an altar and he names it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Now, now a banner... What was a pole or a pole with a cloth that, that armies used during battle. And so a banner signified first the presence of a particular nation. It would represent the nation. We kind of think of this as the, how we use our American flag. Banners were also used to lead an army into battle. The, the army would follow the banner into battle. And the banners were also used to signal battle tactics and communication on the battlefield. Banners were also used as a rallying point for soldiers to regroup. If they ever got lost in the fog of war, they would look for the banner to see if the nation still stood, or they would run to the banner to regroup. And so the banner became central in the battle. As mediator, Moses raised the banner that, that Israel would know they belonged to the Lord. He, they, they would know that the Lord defined them as a nation, that his presence and power were their hope and strength. Moses raised the banner that Israel would know they are God's chosen and beloved people who fight in faith and hope and in the strength of the Lord. Even when the enemy seemed too powerful, even when it seemed like the battle may be lost, Israel knew as long as the banner was held high, they had victory. As long as the Lord was over them, they had victory. As long as the Lord was fighting for them, they had victory, and they could put their hope and their trust in him. And in that hope and trust, they fought. They fought. And just as God called Israel to fight, church, he calls us to fight. Israel had enemies they needed to fight we have enemies we are called to fight. And so what does Exodus 17 teach us about fighting this battle? Because look, we're not picking up swords and swinging them at people. As 2 Corinthians 10 tells us, for although we live in the flesh, 
We do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh. Our weapons are spiritual weapons for a spiritual war. So what does Exodus 17 teach us about spiritual warfare? Well, it's only when Israel fought under the banner of the Lord were they victorious. Only when they fought under the banner of the Lord that was raised were they victorious. So if we are going to fight a victorious fight, if we are going to fight the spiritual warfare, we need to fight under a banner. And here's the good news for us, church. A banner has been raised for us. The Lord has raised a banner for us. Just as Moses raised the banner in battle against the enemy of God and his people, so too has the Lord Jesus Christ been raised in battle for us. To go to war against our sin, to go to war against the evil of our world, to go to war against Satan, to go to war against suffering and death, Jesus Christ, our banner, was lifted up on a cross. And on that cross, the evil of our world and Satan thought they had won. They thought they had defeated the king of glory, smacked him up on that cross, defeated him forever, put down any movement of God. But what does Colossians 2 tell us? On the cross, when Jesus was lifted up, he not only paid for our sin, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Remember that phrase? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them on the cross Jesus defeated every evil power and force and ruler and authority. He put them to open shame. He said, take your best shot. They said, well, take our best shot. Nail you to a cross. Thought they had won and Jesus said, you didn't win. I defeated you. Publicly shaming them. A banner has been raised, church, for us. And under that banner, we have victory. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Jesus was raised up as a banner on the cross, but he was also raised up as a banner in his resurrection. Raised to life, victorious over sin and evil and suffering and death. And through his resurrection power, he now raises to life those who belong to him. Through the resurrection of Christ, you and I, if we belong to Christ, we experience full forgiveness of sin's guilt and freedom from sin's power. We have victory over Satan and evil, and one day we will have victory over death. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus was raised up on the cross. He was raised up in his resurrection, but he's also raised up in his ascension. Jesus ascended to the throne room of God, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. Moses put his hand on the throne of God, as it were. Jesus is sitting on the throne. And from that throne, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the sovereign king over all things. He rules and reigns. And you know what else he's doing? Interceding for us. He is before the Father praying for us. And the Father joyfully, willingly receives the prayers of the Son on our behalf. Jesus is a greater mediator than Moses ever was because Jesus is a mediator that doesn't get tired. He doesn't wear out. He isn't just a man standing between God and man. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, standing between the Father and us. And through him, the Father welcomes us, loves us, accepts us. Friends, Jesus is the banner that has been raised. 
He is our banner of victory. It is under the banner of Jesus, the crucified but now resurrected, reigning and ascended king, that we fight. We fight under this banner. This is our strength. This is our hope, church. And so here's the question, are you fighting? Are you fighting under the banner of Christ? Are you fighting in the victory, in the power that Christ has given you? Because I want to I pause here and just, just acknowledge something. Because look, I understand how talking about fighting can feel uncomfortable. Some of you in here are probably like, yeah, let's go get it. <laughs> Some of you are probably just like, wait a minute here. What are we talking about? What does this mean? Because you, you, you see where this goes sideways. Like you see what happens in our world when we start talking about fighting enemies. You see the way the church has used this to, come, to, to, to just exercise anger and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Like, like you see all of that. And it makes you leery of any talk of fighting, any talk of battling an enemy. And yes, the church at times has used this to justify sinful things. But listen, those mistakes do not negate the fact that we are still in a battle. We are still at war. Yes, be loving, be kind, be humble, be gracious. We follow Jesus. Don't justify or don't, don't cry persecution because people are calling you out for being a jerk. Like you don't get to play that card. But let me also be as clear as I possibly can here. Look, the world does not hate the church because it is too hypocritical and too self-righteous. If the world hates the church, it's because it hates our God. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus tell his disciples? If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Listen, church, being more like Jesus doesn't make the battle go away. It makes the battle more intense. The more you and I are like Jesus, the more you and I are faithful to Christ, the more we can expect our enemy to come at us. The more we can expect the war to be intense. And so undermining and minimizing this battle, shying away from it because of the abuses of, that, that other Christians have, have done in the name of this battle, we can't allow that to happen. Because if we do, our enemy will have its way with us. Because he's bringing the battle to us. Our enemy has come and is coming. And so we have to fight, church. And so how, how do we fight? How, how do we, in light of Christ being our banner, how do we fight? Well, first of all, we don't fight in our own strength. right? Because when we fight in our own strength, what does that lead to? That's what leads to anger. That's what leads to fear. That's what leads to us mistakenly think that this battle is won at the level of politics. Like when, when we start to fight in our own strength and start to, we start to use the weapons of this world, so to speak, rather than fighting under the banner of Christ and in and under and through Christ. And so here's how we fight this battle. Here's how we fight this church. That the, bat, that the banner of Christ has been raised, we now raise the banner. That, that Christ has been raised as our banner of victory we now, as it were, raise the banner. What do I mean by that? Christ has been raised. He is our banner over us. He is, in, he is reigning in victory. And now in our lives, 
we raise that banner, meaning we exalt Christ in our lives. And everything that we do and everything that we are, we exalt him. We look to him. We raise that banner of Christ in our lives, in the church, and in the world that we go into. So friends, when the enemy comes at you trying to paralyze and freeze you with fear, raise the banner of Christ. Look to Christ, the victorious one who has defeated sin and has defeated evil and has defeated Satan and suffering and death. Look to his victory and take courage, take strength, take heart knowing he has overcome the world and through him you will overcome. Yes, it could be painful. Yes, persecution could come and it may cost you, but Jesus is with you. He will strengthen you and in that battle you will be victorious. And so if you feel the fear coming on, if you feel that you're becoming paralyzed by that fear, raise the banner of Christ. Raise the banner of Christ in your life. Oh, if you hear the deception of the enemy, the lies, the, the, the lure to comfort, the, the lure to, to, to not be so faithful to Scripture, raise the banner. Well, when the temptation comes for you to follow sin, whether that would be sinful belief or sinful patterns. Raise the banner. Exalt Christ in your life. Raise the banner by being in his word, praying, gathering for worship, being with God's people, the means of grace, the sacraments, all that Christ gives to us that, we may, that, that he may be big in our hearts and transform us. Raise the banner in Christ when, when the enemy wants to deceive you, cut through that deception with the power of his word. When the enemy is trying to sow despair, cut through that despair through prayer. When the enemy wants to bring doubt and self-pity, defend yourself with faith. Raise the banner of Christ in your life and in your heart. And don't just do it for yourself. Do it for others. Parents, raise the banner of Christ for your kids. Listen, if you look at any of those like surveys and studies of, of kind of the, the theological uh, sort of ground or, or the condition of the church in our country, anyone, here's what you'll notice. The younger the demographic, the more likely they are not to hold to biblical truth. Like, like in some ways this is not new, but, but that, that gap is starting to grow. And the gap between what the world believes and what the church believes is starting to, to shrink and largely is because of the younger demographic. What does this mean? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. But here's what this means, parents. The enemy is coming for your kids. He is coming for your kids. And if you are not raising the banner of Christ for them, if you are not fighting for them and teaching them to fight, he is going to get at them. Again, he might not be able to steal their faith, but he seeks to corrupt their faith. Are you raising the banner for them? Oh, parents, don't let the world run rent-free through your kids' minds and hearts. Make Jesus big to them. Make Jesus glorious to them. Show them that Jesus is better than anything else. Show them that his word is true and good and beautiful. Show them that worshiping Jesus and being obedient to Jesus is better than any lie the world can sell them. Make Jesus big to them. I'm not saying being a fearful helicopter parent. Don't do that. Make Jesus big. Model that for them. Show them that Jesus is a big deal through your life, through your faith, and then fight for them. While they are young, they're still learning to fight. They can't fight on their own. They need you to fight for them, so fight for them. Raise the banner of Christ for them. And do this for each other. 
Do this for each other. Do we not get tired? Do we not get worn out? Does not the enemy beat us up? Does not the enemy cause us to doubt and to fear? Does he not get us wrapped around the axle with condemnation, thinking that we have blown it and there's no redemption for us? We've messed things up and there's no way out. Do we not at times just feel crushed by the battle? So we need each other to raise the banner for each other. We need each other to say, look to Jesus. I know you're feeling weak. I know you're feeling worn out. You probably can't even pick up your sword to fight right now. But let me raise the banner. Let me point you. Let me lift your arms for you to show you that Christ is one. Christ is victorious and his victory is over you too. And in his strength, you can fight. In his strength, you can have victory. So do this for your brothers and sisters. When you see your friend in your gospel community or in your church struggling, don't just sort of, oh, yeah, they're struggling. No, go to them and raise the banner. Husbands, when your wives are struggling, go to them and raise the banner for them. Wives, when your husbands are struggling, go and raise the banner for them. Church, the enemy wants to take out your friend, your family member, your husband, your wife. And sometimes they're too weak to fight, and when that happens, raise the banner for them. Finally, church, let's raise the banner to this world. Let's take the fight to the enemy. What did Jesus promise? He's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. That's an offensive term. Gates were kept to defend. The church is going at the gates of hell. We're on the offensive here. We are taking the gospel to the world. We're shining the light of Jesus into the darkness of this world that his truth and his gospel would set people free from sin, break through the lies so they have life in Jesus. Let's take the gospel. Let's raise the banner of Christ in our world. And look, if you're here this morning and you don't profess faith in Jesus, listen, even this morning, Christ is raising the banner in front of you. He's saying, come to me, believe in me, experience forgiveness and freedom and life in me. Because here's the reality. You might go, well, I've never, I don't, I don't you know, mess around with evil spiritual forces and Satan. and that, that, That's sensationalized stuff. But here's what scripture teaches. Is that if we are not in Christ, that our hearts are in rebellion against God. We are at the mercy of the prince of the power of the air, as Paul calls him in Ephesians 2. His influence, his power in our life is what has us. We need to be set free. We need to, our dead hearts need to be made alive. We need to be forgiven. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus does that. And this morning, you can experience that. You can be set free. You can be forgiven. You can be brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you can join this battle against the one who wants to ruin and wreck and destroy this world. Are you in the fight, church? Are we in the fight? Because here's the good news for us, and I say this in conclusion. In Exodus 17, Moses writes this, or the Lord says to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekites were a threat to Israel for many years. We read this throughout the Old Testament. They're constantly going to war with these jokers. 
At times, they even defeated Israel. But under King Hezekiah, eventually, Israel defeated them forever. The Lord brought final and lasting judgment to the enemy of his people. And so, friends, listen. The battle is hard. The battle is weary. But we won't be at war forever. Someday, Jesus is coming back, and he will put an end to all sin and all evil. He will put Satan away forever. He will end suffering, and he will end death itself. Someday, Jesus will return and finish the the work that he started, full, lasting, complete victory. That's our hope, church. It's in that hope, that power that we fight. But we also have hope for today. Because God is at war today against evil. God is fighting for his people even today. We have that hope, church. And the fact that Christ is our banner who has been raised. Let us raise the banner. Amen? Let's pray.